Anil Seth is a neuroscientist studying consciousness, shedding light on what it means to be you. Due to his expansive body of work, Anil is within the top 0.1% of most impactful researchers and is recognized as a web of science highly cited researcher. Some of his notable projects include The Dream Machine, an interactive public exhibition combining the powers of art and science to enhance our understanding of the diversity within conscious experience, as well as Project Conscious, where he investigates the neural mechanisms behind consciousness. In his most recent highly acclaimed book, Being You, Anil guides the reader through the study of consciousness in philosophy and science, providing a new understanding of what it means to be you. Anil Seth, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You're going to share with us a passage from Being You. Just set up the passage. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage from about the second part of the book, so about 100 and so pages in. The book is about consciousness. It's all about how it is that our brains, our bodies, this material, biological stuff that we're made out of, how does it generate experience? The experience of the world around us and of being a self within it. And the book is divided into four parts. The first part being conscious level, how conscious we are, maybe the difference between anesthesia and conscious wakefulness and sleep and all these things and whether it's possible to measure consciousness. The second part, which I'll read from, is about conscious content, how we experience the world, how the brain turns this streams of sensory information that comes into the brain into this coherent, unified experience of a world with people and places and so on. And that's really the core of the book. The third part talks about the self, how we understand what it means to be a self. And then in the last part of the book, I talk about free will, about consciousness in other animals and non-humans, and then in machines and about the possibility of non-human consciousness. So let me read from chapter four. Chapter four is called perceiving from the inside out. I open my eyes and a world appears. I'm sitting on the deck of a tumble-down wooden house high in a cypress forest a few miles north of Santa Cruz in California. It's early morning. Looking straight out, I can see tall trees still wreathed in the cool ocean fog that rolls in every night, sending the temperature plummeting. I can't see the ground, so the deck and the trees all seem to be floating together with me in the mist. There are some old plastic chairs. I'm sitting on one, a table and a tray arranged with coffee and bread. I can hear bird songs and rustling around in the back, the people I'm staying with, and a distant murmur for something that I can't quite identify. Not every morning is like this. This is a good morning. And I try to persuade myself, not for the first time, that this extraordinary world is a construction of my brain, a kind of controlled hallucination. Whenever we are conscious, we are conscious of something or of many things. These are the contents of consciousness. And to understand how they come about and what I mean by controlled hallucination, let's change our perspective and imagine for a moment that you are a brain. Really try to think about what it's like up there, sealed inside the bony vault of a skull, trying to figure out what's out there in the world. There's no light, no sound, no anything. It's completely dark and utterly silent. When trying to form perceptions, all the brain has to go on is the constant barrage of electrical signals which are only indirectly related to things out there in the world, whatever they may be. These sensory inputs don't come with labels attached. I'm from a cup of coffee. I'm from a tree. They don't even arrive with labels announcing their modality, whether they are visual, auditory, sensations of touch, or from less familiar modalities such as thermoception, the sense of temperature, or proprioception, the sense of body position. How does the brain transform these inherently ambiguous sensory signals into a coherent, perceptual world full of objects and people and places? In part two of this book, 
we explored the idea that the brain is a prediction machine and that what we see, hear and feel is nothing more than the brain's best guess of the causes of its sensory inputs. Following this idea all the way through, we will see that the contents of consciousness are a kind of waking dream, a controlled hallucination that is both more than and less than whatever the real world really is. It is hard to wrap your mind around the idea that it could be a mutually agreed upon hallucination, that it is all a dream, but it's so true. And as you described in that passage, we are limited by our senses. And you mentioned, I think, first it was sight and then auditory. And the prioritization of those senses as well informs the way we experience the world. As you also go into in other passages, there are animals who communicate through vibrations or the sensitivities, the light that they can see that we can't and all these things. So it's so interesting to see the ways our experience of the world is enhanced by our senses and is also limited. We're, we have this narrow beam and how do we narrow that and how do we make sense of the world? Yeah, I think it is endlessly fascinating. And this idea of controlled hallucination, I think the important thing to emphasize about this is that these metaphors of hallucination and waking dreams and so on, they're a bit limited because they can encourage the idea that there's no such thing as objective reality, that it's all sort of made up in our minds. But of course, you know, our brains are material things anyway. So if that's the case, then what's doing the making up, it becomes a little bit <laughs> inconsistent. But anyway, that's not what's, what I'm saying or, or anybody with a similar idea is saying that there is a real world out there, but it is not the same world that we experience. And this is a point in philosophy that goes back as, at least as far as Immanuel Kant and probably back to Plato, that the world as it is, Kant called it the noumenon, can never be directly apprehended by our minds. We are shielded from it by what he called a sensory veil. For instance, there are no such thing as colors that actually are out there in the world. Colors, as the artist Cezanne said, the colors is where the brain and the universe meet. And color is, I think, a really good example because it is, in a sense, less than what's there because our eyes are only sensitive to three wavelengths of this huge electromagnetic spectrum, which goes all the way from x-rays and gamma rays to radio waves. And we live in a tiny, thin slice of that reality. But then out of those three wavelengths, our brains generate many more than three colors and almost an infinite palette of colors. There's no sense in which our perception could ever reveal the world as it really is. It reveals the world in a way that's very useful for us as organisms hell-bent on continuing to live and to survive. Yes. And in many ways, we're very creative creatures. We're storytelling machines. And one of those things that your book made me think about is just, are we the stories we tell ourselves? Are we the stories that others tell about us? Are we more than those stories? What happens to us when you talk about people who have amnesia? You know, what happens when we mm -hmm. can no longer interpret our stories or remember our own story and all we're left with are those stories that others have told about us? Yeah, storytelling is a distinctively human thing, although I always worry a little bit about saying something is distinctively human, and then we later find out that many other creatures do it as well. But it's certainly something that in human culture and society, we value very highly. And it is not just something we do, it's something we are. Part of what it is to be a self is the story that our brains and minds tell our brains and minds about ourselves. That is part of the self. That This is the string of memories and the plans for the future that together constitute part of our personal identity. They're not something the self does, they're something the self is. And part of that is also social. So part of my plans, part of my memories, part of my sense of self is refracted through the minds of those around me. I noticed this in daily life when I've got a pretty bad memory myself of things that happened in my life. And when I'm with friends that I've known for decades, 
they will often remember things that happened to me or that we were together at the same time better than I do. And at these times, it really seems true. My sense of self of who I am is partly in the minds of my friends, or rather it's in the interaction between my friends and me. And for increasingly large numbers of us, our memories are in our phones. And so <laughs> there's a case to be made that part of the self is now technology, as my colleague at Sussex, Sandy Clark, has been arguing for a long time with this idea of the extended mind. And the boundaries of the mind aren't the skull. They can be much further than that, further afield, depending on the systems we use, the people we live with, and the environments that we're in. We are storytelling creatures, and we don't fully know the way in which animals perceive the world. And I think that maybe a little difference is we have a big focus on individualism. And I have a, a feeling that in animal society, it's much more prevalent in order to survive. They have this kind of collective things and their arts are in a way collective. If you watch the murmuration of birds, this beautiful mm. dance that's about survival, it's a collective thing. So that's what I feel might differentiate us. Yeah, there's other species that are very social, that are constitutively social. Creatures like ants, for instance, they just don't survive outside a colony at all. It's often posed that it's the ant colony that is the organism rather than the individual ants, which is a bit of a strange thing to say, but there's some interesting truth to it somewhere. Other creatures, I talk in my book a little bit about octopuses, which are fascinating because they're so distant from us in terms of our evolutionary history, probably about 600 million years. And spending any time with an octopus, as I've been lucky to do, there's such a convincing and compelling feeling of presence of another mind there and a conscious mind too. Now, we can be led astray by our intuitions like this, but it's objectively the case that octopuses are very smart. They do many interesting things and they have quite large brains, but they're not social creatures. Well, they're very rarely social creatures. Most of their lives are solitary. Occasionally, they might group together, but it's very rarely seen in nature. So I think it's a fascinating open question about the prevalence of all retelling as part of the self in non-human species and also the extent to which this depends on socialization as well. I think it's hugely variable. Primates are very social animals. I think the individuality that you talk about is probably a relatively recent thing. It's probably more political than something that's baked into our evolutionary and biological past. We are one of the primate family and primates are very social creatures. Yeah, I think it may also be related to the fact that we dominate the planet the way we do. I know that there are the solitary animals, but they have to cooperate because of their limited access to resources. And it's so interesting when you mention what is octopus consciousness and also where does consciousness exists. We think it's behind our eyes because that's the way we're orientated. But if your body is different, I know dancers, they're thinking with their limbs. Yeah, I think we all do that to some extent. I'm not a dancer, but I enjoy various sports and things. And even when sitting at my, there's a sense in which I think through my body, you know, we make gestures, we scrawl on pieces of paper, of course, the brain is embodied and the body is embedded. And this has been quite a sea change in cognitive science and neuroscience, not just in my work, but in many other other peoples, moving away from the tradition that was very dominant in most of the 20th century, which was this sort of idea, especially from the 50s and 60s on, that the brain was a kind of computer and the body was there mainly to move it around from meeting to meeting. And the brain would send out commands to the body and take information in. But you know, just as much as you can put a computer chip in an object of any shape, it still does the same thing. There was the underlying assumption that the body itself didn't really contribute to our perception, our cognition, our thinking very much. Now, this wasn't something everybody believed, but it was an implicit belief in a lot of cognitive science. And that's really changed. 
very few people would defend that. And I think there's increasing recognition that the body shapes and partly constitutes our perceptions and our beliefs, both through structuring our interactions with the environment and through the body itself. And emotion, I talk about this too in the book, an emotion is pretty best considered or understood as a perception of the interior of the body. You know, a perception of how well the brain is doing at keeping the body alive. It's again quite an old idea in psychology, but bring it up to date and thinking about it in terms of this concept of controlled hallucination that I mentioned from the reading, it gives it a new lease of life. But the body, again, is at the center of it. The body is the reason we have brains after all. The brains evolved to control and regulate the body and keep it alive. And everything, I think, starts to make sense in consciousness research, in psychology when you think about it through that lens. Yes, and you discuss machine minds. And when you say that our phones have become our memories and are able to compute in much greater speed and capacity than we can oftentimes. There's so many things on the drawing board in terms of machine intelligence and AI that it's getting kind of scary with all the neural wetware. I think it is getting a little worrying. The menu of available worries, I think, is mixed and people often focus on the wrong parts of that menu. There's a lot of worry about conscious machine. Will AI develop to a point where suddenly the lights come on and we not only have systems around us that are intelligent, but that are also aware and capable of suffering, but also capable of doing things that might be, I don't know, malevolent somehow. I think this is an idea born mainly of of science fiction and dystopian fiction in reality. And I think it's just based on some fundamentally flawed assumptions, most obvious being consciousness and intelligence. There's this assumption in a lot of the writing about this, certainly a lot of the discourse, that consciousness and intelligence are very, very closely related or even aspects of the same thing. So that if an AI becomes sufficiently intelligent, then consciousness just comes along for the ride. But intelligence and consciousness are completely different things. We may put them together because we still have this latent or residual human exceptionalism where we think we are smart and we know we're conscious. So we like to link the two together. And over history, people have done that. And Descartes in the 17th century did this most aggressively reserving consciousness really for this notion of the rational, intelligent, immaterial mind that other animals didn't have. But understanding consciousness more broadly as perception, perceptual experience of the world and the self within it highlights that much of our conscious experience has to do with the body, has to do with emotion, mood. And you don't have to be particularly smart, even by questionable human standards, to be conscious in this way. In the book, I end up with a position, an argument, that consciousness is much more closely tied to our nature as living machines, flesh and blood creatures, than it is to our form of intelligence. And so by these lights, a conscious AI is not really around the corner. A conscious computer would have to be a living computer. And that's not the direction things are going. But there's still a lot to be worried about. We're almost at the stage where we have these machine learning algorithms like ChatGPT, which can play on our anthropomorphic tendencies and convince us that there's a mind there, even though all that's going on is just statistics under the hood. And that's dangerous. If we live in a world where we feel like we're interacting with other conscious minds, even though we know we are not, and that's quite disruptive. Sometimes we can't help feeling these kinds of things, a sort of way that if we have a visual illusion, we might know that it's an illusion, but we still can't help seeing the illusion. Like two lines might look the same length and we know they're different lengths, but we still see them as the same length. We might face something similar with AI, that we know what's going on under the hood is just statistics running on silicon. We nonetheless feel it's conscious because of the way our mind works, not because of the way its system works. 
Yeah, that's how we seduce ourselves. We can fall in love with someone who's totally absent and in the same way with AI. And it's how you define consciousness as an artist. I feel like it's linked to creativity. And when you're saying intelligence or maybe knowledge or facts or knowing, that's mm. about certainties. It's about what we know. And I often feel like my experience, at least of consciousness or creativity, if they're aligned in that way, it's about what we don't know. We don't know what happens after we die, so we invent a story about the afterlife or belief or we create stories and art or things to fill in that, as you say, this picture of reality that we're not certain about. It's interesting to think about this relationship between consciousness and creativity. I mean, there's also this tradition to think about creativity as really depending on the unconscious in the mind to some extent, that it's when we let the mind do its thing without us getting involved as the conscious self, that new ideas spring up. And this doesn't have to be Freudian unconscious at all. This can just be stuff happening in our brains that we're not aware of. Therefore, activity might be this productive interaction between the two forms of activity in the mind. And you know, what do you think? Do you think that there's more space for the unconscious in the process of creativity in humans? Oh, definitely. I actually agree that the best work often comes when you get out of the way. You just create the conditions to be that vessel. It can't be you because that's just too quick. It can't be you. It's some, something else. But no, I do believe it's unconscious. But I guess the human element, when I think about consciousness and creativity, this I that we think of, it still has this element of the unknown. I'm just contrasting it mm -hmm. with like intelligence and the facts, the things we can measure. I feel like consciousness is this perspective. Mm -hmm. And so with the creativity, it has to be what's in front of me and what I can grasp. I don't know if that defines it very well, but I do like that topic of unconsciousness. I think they call it the flow state. I often feel like people are looking for that loss of control. And it's funny because I've obviously had a lot of conversations with different creatives and artists, and mm -hmm. some will say, oh, I'm always driving the car. But I feel like I want to not be driving the car. I want something else because then it's greater than me, right? I was so intentional. And then that way, it's just not, living it doesn't have a life of its own it's in a way inert and dead yeah the flow state i think is very related i think of it as a distinctive conscious state much of our conscious lives are not in this so-called flow state and the reason they're not is because we're often monitoring what we're doing and this kind of inner critical voice saying what are you doing now what are we going to do next or there's some sort of just mind wandering going on where we're distracted from what we're doing and the flow state i think is characterized at least in part by the quietening of this cognitive, reflective element of the mind, that we're just doing what we're doing, and it's unfolding well. And there's a sense that whatever's happening is happening fluently, so that it doesn't require this monitoring, and that monitoring gets silenced. Now, this can be really know how one would tie that very precisely to creativity, but it could be very necessary for the expression of any kind of process. Flow happens generally when people are performing something that they're very expert in, they're very well trained in. So you can be in flow in sport, you can be in flow playing a video game, you can be in flow painting or dancing, I'm sure. And I think what each of these things has in common is that you're not so much planning everything you're doing one step at a time in this immediate look ahead fashion. It happens. You know what you're doing so that you don't have to. You're still, of course, conscious of what's going on. You can't be in a flow state when you're anesthetized, but conscious experience is much more immediate. It's much more perceptual. It's much more valenced, I think, in terms of, yes, this feels good. And that may be an enabling condition for human creativity. But I think creativity and intelligence are also very, a lot of this just depends on how we define these words, right? And both creativity and intelligence, for many people, for me, also share 
the the property that it's about putting things together in different ways and perhaps in ways that haven't been done before in order to achieve some goal. Like creativity might have the additional connotation of novelty. It has to be done in a way that's new rather than that works. Intelligence, it, it just has to work. It doesn't matter if somebody's done it before or even if you've done it before. But creativity, there's, I guess, this element of has to be different, whether it's in a historical sense or whether it's in the sense of an individual's own life and experience. And it's very interesting because I know that you've like mind mapping and you've analyzed the different waves in our brain. And it's interesting. I think her name is Gabriela Montero, and she does these live improvisations, classical piano, and she just will take a theme that's thrown out to her from the audience. And I guess she's had her mind mapped and to see where the lack of the sense of self, where we, how we identify as ourselves, the, the brain waves, it seems to disappear when she's doing this. And I've spoken to other improvisers and they'll say, oh, I was just gone. I was on stage for two hours and I was gone and mm -hmm. you know, something else took over. H how do you explain that, you know, your explorations of the improvised state? Mm, it's hard. I mean, I haven't looked at that directly, partly because it's actually very hard to get good data from people who are actually in the midst of that state. It's a bit like studying lying in neuroscience. It's very difficult to get them to do it on command. It happens in the wild and it's in a sort of quite unconstrained way. But the thought is that what would be turned off or turned down is not the whole of the self, but the self is comprised of many different processes. There's, as we already mentioned, there's the story of self, of personal identity. There's a social aspect. There's also the first person perspective on the world. As you said, we see the world from behind our eyes. Then the body and emotion, all these aspects collectively contribute to our ongoing experience of being who we are. And certain aspects of that might get attenuated in these flow states. And these would be the more narrative aspects, the more mind-wandery aspects, the more reflective looking down on how performance is going aspects, so that you get something that may have some similarity to states that in other contexts are called states of ego dissolution, where you feel the boundary between you and the rest of the world including other people and what you're doing, becomes a little bit more porous, a little bit more ill-defined. And, and that is the state that can happen in meditation. It can happen under the influence of various psychedelics. In one of our projects, we use stroboscopic light to give people powerful visual hallucinations. And that seems to also generate some of this ego dissolution. So talking a little bit about the experiments that you performed to be able to study consciousness. So consciousness, in your book, you talk about it as being a subjective experience, but the goal of science is to observe and define things objectively. So how do you go about designing an empirical study to explain predicting control as sort of subjective mm -hmm. experience? And what behavioral and biological correlates are you looking for with that? It's quite hard, but it's not impossible. So you're absolutely right. This is one of the fundamental tensions in consciousness research. And one of the reasons why for so long it was considered fringe or even a little bit disreputable and illegitimate. But there is no fundamental problem with at least getting quite some way along the road. We can all provide data about private subjective experiences in many ways by talking. I can describe what's going on in my experience. And I might be incomplete about it. I might even be wrong about it. But what I say about what's happening in my experience is not going to be totally unrelated to what's going on in my experience. So the trick is to design experiments that allow people to describe, maybe by saying, maybe by pushing a button, maybe by other means, what they experience. 
at a time, whether it's just free and open report or whether we constrain it. I mean, it's an experiment to say, okay, we're going to show you one of four things, which do you visually experience? And then people can tell us. One of the experiments we're doing now, just to give a concrete example, is we use computational models to try and understand visual hallucinations. So hallucinations that people have in different conditions, like in Parkinson's disease or in psychosis or under like a Dalek. And in each of these cases, people perceive things that aren't there, but they have different kind of characters. So some hallucinations are complex, others are simple. Some have people in them, some don't. Some are integrated with the rest of the environment, some are not. And what we can do is we can basically build the simulations of the brain processes that we think are involved to generate simulated hallucinations, like from images that we feed in or videos that we feed in. And then we actually go to people who have these hallucinations and we ask them about their lived experience. And we even show them the output of the model and ask them to tell us, is this similar to what's going on or is this similar? So we can begin to close the gap here between the objective and the subjective. We might not get all the way, but we can get some of the way. And that's a good start. Yeah, that's super interesting. One of the ways in being you that you provide an allegory or a framework work through which we can understand understand consciousness is by comparing it to a temperature thermometer, mm. um, which I thought was super interesting. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more about this allegory and how you understand consciousness. Like, is it a scalar sort of thing or, or is there like a baseline level of mm -hmm. normal human consciousness? Yeah. Thank you for picking that up. That's something I write about in the first part of the book. In the history of science, the idea of being able to measure something to facilitate this understanding is very powerful. And in the book, I talk a little bit about heat, which is understood very well in physics now and in philosophy. Now, we know what heat is. It's not just something that feels hot or cold. We know that it's how fast molecules move within whatever it is. Now, if they move fast, it's hotter. If they move not at all, it's cold. And so we can generalize beyond the human range of experience of hot and cold and talk sensibly about the temperature of the sun or the temperature of interstellar space, which in our subjective experience, these things make no sense at all. They're totally out of range. But we understand what heat is. It turns out to be something else. But in other things in science, this doesn't happen. So life, which was also once very mysterious, is not something you measure on a single scale. It's not, as you said, it's not a scalar quantity. You don't say a mosquito is 4.6 alive, but a rat is 7.7. It's ridiculous. Of course, we all know rat is at least 8.4. But you can't measure life on a scale. So is consciousness more like temperature or is it more like life? And in my book, I explore, let's see how far we can get with the temperature analogy, even though spoiler alert, I come down in the end on the side of life. But pushing the temperature analogy is instructive, partly because we can still make some measure, even if it doesn't turn out to be fully explanatory of consciousness. There is a global difference between being awake and aware as we are now and being asleep and then again being in a coma or under general anesthesia. There is a sense in which global level of consciousness changes. And there are ways that we can begin to measure that. And I think this is one of the really exciting frontiers in consciousness research. There are ways using brain stimulation where we inject a pulse of energy into the brain and listen to its echo, basically put a number to the complexity of that echo that we can measure consciousness. And at the moment, this is limited to measuring consciousness and how it changes within an, a given individual, within a person. We can't generalize to like many, many different people or the species, but it's still a good start. And it's already useful because in neurology clinics, it's very important to 
be able to diagnose whether people have consciousness left after brain injury if they can't behave. So this, if they can't say anything, move their body in any way, this provides a mechanism that we can assess whether consciousness remains purely on the basis of what's happening in the brain. So it's very, very useful. But in the end, yeah, I come down to the idea that consciousness is not something that just unfolds on a single dimension. There are many ways of being conscious, many things that you might try to measure. So it's probably neither like life nor like temperature. It's its own thing. And that's part of what makes it exciting. Yeah. And that kind of brings me back circling previously in the conversation when you were talking about the relationship between intelligence, aliveness and consciousness. I was wondering what role does the human ego play in the study of consciousness? And how do you check for the anthropomorphic tendencies that we have to recognize intelligence as a symptom of consciousness in ourselves and in other animals? The ego is extremely difficult to get rid of at any level, right? I mean, and driven by, to some extent, human egos and scientists. We like to idealize it and think that we are seeking truth by this well-honed method of testing against evidence from nature. But really, that's not what going on most of the time most people and i include myself in this now we get attached to our ideas and we try and show their worth rather than trying to disprove them which is what you should do and we try to do that as well i try to do that as well a little bit but it would be i think it's wrong of me to deny that that i get attached to my own ideas and treat them preferentially i think the hope is that science as a long-term project is a bit self-correcting in this way if you put the right checks and balances in place. So human ego operates certainly at the level of how science in practice works. But it's also important, as you say, in how we approach the things we're studying. We do have to navigate this very tricky balance between anthropomorphism, where we see the rest of nature as kind of mirrors of ourselves to the extent that they are, I mean, we project ourselves into things. And anthropocentrism, where we see ourselves as exceptional, as distinctive, as special, without equal, without correspondence in the rest of nature. And we are susceptible to both of these things. And history has shown this. We've always considered ourselves at the center of things, whether it's the center of the universe or distinct from all other animals. There's this very, very common and I think quite pernicious anthropocentrism. And of course, when we do get rid of it in whatever context, whether it's Copernicus showing us we're not at the center of the universe or Darwin showing us that we're not distinct from other animals, nature becomes more interesting, more wonderful, not less. And I think the same thing will happen with mind, that as we naturalize that, things will become more wonderful. It's not that we take away the wonder of the mind and consciousness by realizing that it's part of nature. I think that will expand our wonder. In practice, how we do this, it's really, really hard. And it's just a case of continually interrogating the assumptions that we make when we approach these phenomena. And there's absolutely no guarantee of being able to do it, but one at least has to try. So earlier in this interview, Anil discusses the idea of the extended self, the idea that part of our minds can exist outside of our bodies, that it may exist in the memories of our friends and loved ones, but maybe also in devices that help us store memories, like a smartphone. Earlier this week, my phone was stolen. I was eating dinner on a restaurant patio when two women approached me, yelling and shoving their fingers in my drink. While I was distracted by the chaos, they successfully swiped my phone. Getting my phone stolen was not just inconvenient, it felt deeper than that. I was humiliated, and for the rest of the day, I felt a bit hollow inside, like part of me was missing. Now, as embarrassing as this sounds, I couldn't help but consider the idea of the extended self and the possibility that 
part of me exists in my smartphone. I mean, it's true that my phone holds memories that my hippocampus does not. My camera roll works in tandem with my brain to remind me of past events in my life that I do not want to forget, but may not have the mental capacity to store in just my brain. If this is true, if indeed part of my mind exists in my smartphone, then the woman that took my phone not only stole my device, but a part of my mind. Needless to say, this experience was very humbling and has forced me to reconsider my dependency on technology. Now, considering that consciousness and technology is a topic that expands far beyond the possibility of an extended self in our smartphones. Later in the interview, Anil discusses the ominous idea that artificial intelligence may become conscious and to an extent he dispels it. This fear of AI is one that has remained prevalent in our society due to the seemingly exponential development of technology, but Anil asserts that it is a fear that is fed by dystopian and science fiction stories. That said, this fear has perhaps become more prevalent due to the recent rise in AI platforms like ChatGPT that seem uncannily conscious. However, Anil affirms that these platforms are merely statistics and that our fear of conscious AI stems from a number of harmful assumptions, one main one being the human tendency to conflate intelligence and consciousness. In fact, Anil argues that being conscious is much more about being alive, about embodied experiences, emotions, and perceptions than about being intelligent. The idea that consciousness is innately intertwined with our bodies got me thinking about consciousness in other animals. Every one of our experiences is filtered through our body, our senses creating a sort of controlled hallucination, as explained by Anil. As humans, we rely mostly on our vision to perceive the world, but even that is extremely limited. Now imagine an elephant whose sense of smell and of hearing are much more acute than ours and therefore govern their perception of the world. How would an elephant experience the world? Imagine a shark who can sense electrical fields and sense pressure changes via their lateral line. How would a shark experience the world? Considering the world through the perspectives of other animals can help dispel some of our anthropomorphic tendencies and deepen our appreciation of the natural world. And now, back to the interview. And in these cases of people who have amnesia or there may be a coma, there are these amazing feats that we observed. Some people who have extreme amnesia and yet were formerly virtuosic musicians and have no memory but can play mm. music. And maybe you can explain it the muscle memory, somehow deeply programmed. And it makes me reflect on well, is that like a machine? cognition that the, the program is still there and repeats and i do describe a couple of cases like this in the book about people who have amnesia yet what's striking is how much is still preserved and this again gets back to the multiplicity of the self the fact that it's not one thing so if you lose the ability to lay down new memories that is very very destructive for many aspects of the self particularly this, the sense of self-identity. Your story is interrupted. The st story that the brain tells itself, that is interrupted. But a lot of that story has already been written, and that remains, not as a story being told anymore necessarily, but it's ingrained in the rest, your behavior, of your mind, and how you behave. So the example I give in the book is a musicologist called Clive Wearing, and he had a brain infection which gave him a very profound amnesia, the inability to lay down any new memories. And so he lives in this permanent, present tense, to use the word his wife, I think very aptly described the term, the permanent present tense of about half a minute or even less. And she took him on one occasion, at least back to his choir. He used to direct a choir and he was able to direct them in music and seemed fully competent, capable, fully himself, so to speak, in that moment. But of course, afterwards, couldn't remember any of it. And this is both tragic, of course, because it just highlights how his story, his identity has been interrupted. But it's also quite wonderful in a way that one might have thought 
thought that more of him had gone, whereas in fact, a lot of it remains and is brought out in the right context. And of course, he still experienced his body as being his body. He still experienced free will. He still had a first person perspective and his emotions and moods were still there. So most of his self was still around. And I think we make, we can make the mistake of identifying self purely with one level and that being the kind of narrative identity level there's much more to the self than the story it's interesting how these different traditions whether it's you know scientific psychology neuroscience the humanities even how different religious faiths and then traditions and rituals have had these different perspectives on what is consciousness and even going to the other end of the spectrum as we look to the future and machine learning those conceptions of post humanity what do they tell us about what's important and fundamental about human consciousness yeah you're absolutely right and i think this is one of the challenges we really face is we we have been already for hundreds of years redefining what it means to be human as our environment changes both our natural environment our social environment and our technological environment and we can see this now accelerating with the increasingly rapid development of technologies that compete with us, that work with us, that interface with us, that we depend on and that manipulate us. And the machine learning is a good example. We have these chatbots now that we can hold fairly boring conversations with, but we can hold conversations with them. Now, one of my mentors, a philosopher called Daniel Dennett, in many of the very wise things he said was one thing, which was about AI. And he said, with regard to artificial intelligence, we must always remember that we are building tools and not colleagues. I think this is useful to bear in mind because it's a way of guarding against this anthropomorphism that we just talked about. There's a problem here, even with the term artificial intelligence something that's always annoyed me a little bit, the term, which dates back to the 1950s, really encourages us to see these systems as colleagues rather than tools. It gives them a sense of entity, an agency that hides or glosses over, diverts us from the recognition that they're just statistics. If we think of them as tools, then I think we are likely to be able to foster a more complementary relationship with these systems. Like chatbots, they're not going to be the same as us, but we already are finding how they can be useful in terms of providing better forms of search engines, for instance, writing form, pro forma letters that always have a structure. And a moment is threatening because we don't know how it's going to work and what it's going to disrupt. But I think we'll find a way that these things will be useful, but we'll only get there if we remember this essential distinction between building something that we will learn how to use and interact with rather than building something that we wrongly project a mind into. I much prefer that AI as assistive intelligence that is programmed to assist human needs and not technologist needs. And it also is a way of governing it and keeping it in check, our priorities, not letting it run away with itself. I want to talk about Dream Machine. And, oh, yeah. and, if, and if, I want to make sure we talk about your work at the Sackler Center and just a few things. But going back to that, you talked about taking hallucinogens or seeing what they can tell you about our perception of the world. Just tell us a little bit about your exploration of that and isolating the different senses. So studying consciousness, I think one of the tricks here is to get away from the normal. And there's so much about our experience we take for granted. And we open our eyes and there's the world, as I started the passage in the book that I read out. And it seems the most natural thing ever. It even doesn't seem like there's anything to explain. And the self is just the thing that does the perceiving. And that's how it seems. Now, that's not how things are. And of course, the whole trajectory of my career and what's written in the book is an exploration of how this difference arises, how things are rather than how things seem, this idea of controlled hallucination. And one way to uncover this, one way to take a view on it, 
consciousness is to change the conditions of our conscious experience. This can be done in many ways. This can be done in meditation. This can be done in the lab with things like virtual reality. And of course, it can also be done with pharmacology, with chemistry. And since psychedelics have been around, they offered a very interesting window into consciousness because you provide the brain with a very precise manipulation. You inject something that we know where it binds in the brain, the level of kind of molecules and chemistry, we know what's going on. And then experience changes dramatically. And things like ego dissolution happen. Our perceptual experience of the world shifts and mutates. And that's just a fascinating phenomenon. Okay, we can say, well, what's happening in the brain that goes along with these major changes in the unfolding of conscious experience? And that's something that, that I've been with colleagues working on for a fair few years now, trying to characterize how the brain in these altered states is different from the so-called normal brain. But there are many ways of exploring the space of non-normality, if you like. And psychedelics is just one of them. Of course, it's also interesting because of its clinical potential that psychedelics may provide a much needed complement to our approaches for dealing with severe depression and so on. I think there's a lot still to be done there. There's been a bit too much boosterism about this lately, but it's certainly true that it could well have a major impact if done right. Yeah. And what can other conditions like schizophrenia, or I'm not equating them, but like autism or different conditions where you're just different ways of experiencing the world, tell us about our own consciousness? I think the fundamental thing here is we all experience the world differently. And this doesn't need a condition to be slapped on it. There's diversity between all of us. And this is actually something that's related to the Dream Machine project that we'll talk about in a minute. But it, it has its own life too. And we, we at least recognize the existence of alternative forms of experiencing the world in the self under the banner of what's been called neurodiversity. And this is often associated with things like autism or ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. But then psychosis as well is a different way of experiencing the world. Synesthesia, where people experience the mixing of the senses and colors may have shapes and so on. Another way, but Perceptual differences purely in terms of these nameable conditions, I think, can lead us to the false idea that when we are not under the banner of one of these conditions, that we experience the world as it is and the same way that everybody else does. We are, in quotes, neurotypical. And of course, there's really no such thing. Just as we're all different in height and in skin color and body shape and so on, just as we all differ on the outside, we're all going to differ on the inside too. It's just that not a lot is known about this because unlike differences in height and skin color and so on, the inner differences that we have, let's say in how we experience color or the flow of time, these differences are private and subjective. And unless they're large, they don't surface into our behavior or language. And furthermore, it seems to us that we see the world just as it is. It doesn't seem to be that it's dependent on my own brain in a particular way. So these factors conspire to encourage us to neglect the diversity that may well exist between all of us. And in a new project that's been going for about, well, eight months now, it's called the Perception Census. We're trying to uncover this hidden landscape of perceptual diversity and actually measure how different we all are in our inner worlds, in our inner minds. And this is actually something, it's a bit of a call to action for people listening to this. It's a project that's still going on called the Perception Census. It's easy to find online. You can look at my website, anilseth.com, you'll find it. Or Perception Census, you'll find it on Google. And it's a set of just online little exercises and interactive illusions and things. 
that you can do a bit, read, come back to, whatever. And by taking part, you really help us advance the science and philosophy of perception. And you'll learn about perception too and about your own particular way of perceiving the world. We've had more than 20,000 people take part already, but we really want to make this a landmark study. So every person helping really does make a difference. And I've been told they it's really fun to do as well. So it's a fun way to... It's not just the warm glow of contributing to science. I think you enjoy it. I find it endlessly fascinating, just understanding how our minds work. And it's a great thing to point out that they were all neurodivergent in different ways. And some ways, language helps us understand things and, of course, communicate so that we feel like, oh, now I can explain it and I know it. That's one of the fascinating things about language. There's this inherent trade-off that in order to communicate, we have to gloss over differences. So long as we don't gloss over them too much and we start talking past each other. Like earlier in this conversation, we may have meant quite different things by, let's say, intelligence or creativity, which makes it hard to connect. But if we were both looking at the sky and it's a blue sky, we both say blue. I think that's fine. We're not talking past each other, but we might still be having different experiences. And that, yeah, I think there's a fundamental tension in language there that in order for it to work, it needs to be somewhat insensitive to the fine grained differences that exist in our experience, because otherwise we'd never use the same words for anything. And it's so interesting. You know, I lived in Ireland for years and I guess the way Irish people use language is sometimes musical and sometimes it doesn't entirely make sense, but it sounds right. And I remember I was just walking down the street and I heard these two women talking and one said, oh, it's just a phrase he's going through. It's <laughs> great. Doesn't really That's make great. Sense. I like that. Because sometimes it's just the words. It's yeah, not yeah. real. <laughs> I, so I remembered that, but that's so true. Sometimes it's like the sound of it, and it makes sense, and it defines what you're going through at the same time. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the dream machine. So the dream machine is quite ambitious collaboration between scientists, me and others in my group at Sussex, philosophers as Fiona McPherson in Glasgow, but then also architects and musicians and engineers and designers and all sorts. It's a project that uses stroboscopic light experienced on closed eyes to bring about powerful visual experiences in the minds of people who are there. It's based on a very old phenomenon. So the original dream machine was developed by an artist called Brian Geisen in the 19... 50s. And it was a very simple, charmingly lo-fi contraption where there was just a bright bulb hanging over a turntable. Turntable would spin. There'd be a cardboard tube placed around the bulb with some slits cut in it so that you'd get this basic stroboscopic flickering effect. And he noticed that people sitting in front of it with their eyes closed had really quite powerful visual hallucinations, colors and shapes and all sorts of things. And Geisen, in designing it, had worked with a neuroscientist called William Gray Walter, whose work I knew about. I didn't know about Geisen's work until relatively recently. And Walter had been studying this phenomenon too of what he called stroboscopically induced visual hallucination. So fast forward to the 21st century, and for about 10 years in my lab, we'd been looking at this phenomenon too as a sort of backburner project, flickering light on closed eyes, and let's see what goes on in the brain. And because of that, we were invited to be part of this dream machine for the 21st century. And after quite a lot of intensive development, most of which was through the lockdown period, so it was quite difficult, certainly through the heart of the pandemic, we created a new dream machine, a dream machine that 
was different in many ways. It was collective. It is collective, I should say, because it will happen again. It's not over yet. So what would happen is groups of people would come into a space. We tended to use underutilized buildings. So a public market in London, a deconsecrated church in Belfast, an ice rink during summer in Edinburgh, and a temple in Cardiff. Each building was semi-converted for a few weeks, and within each building was this space, sort of a large blue wooden box, which was the dream machine. And people would go in after some time, get settled, and as a group, 20 or 30, there would be a session, and they would experience strobe lights, which you carefully designed to be effective, but also safe. People would have whatever experience they had, and in the dream machine, everybody has their own distinctive experience. And then they would leave and come out and we had this reflection zone where people would hang about and often they would hang about for quite a long time and they would draw, write, um, fill in this survey that we had on a little interactive tablet thing, talk about what they experienced, connect with others. And overall, we had about 35 to 40,000 people experience the Dream Machine last year across these four cities in the UK, which is a vast number you know, because it's quite intensive for each person. But I'd never been involved in anything like this before because the art science collaboration was so built in from the beginning. It's often a little bit superficial, like let's have a scientific gloss on this arts project or let's collect some data from it. But here, the design of it, the realization of it, every aspect of it involved the science and the philosophy. So it was very, very rewarding. And its impact has been huge. I mean, people... Honestly, people loved it. We had so many positive reports and people would come back time and time again and tell us how it often sometimes transformed their lives, helped them through periods of intense grief and so on. And it's not just the flickering lights here. It's the whole setting, I think, that's important. But it's unexpected for most people. You go in, you sit down, you close your eyes and then something magical happens. And when people come out, one of the most common things that they would say and we would encourage them to think about this, reflect on it, is the power of their own brains and minds. It really ignited in many people a curiosity and a sense of war for what their brains do that challenged this idea that we all have that we've talked about a bit today, that it's so easy to take our conscious minds and ourselves for granted, that we open our eyes and there the world is. What happens in the dream machine is that you realize, that, oh, sh my brain is doing this. It's generating all this stuff. And if it's generating in the dream machine, then it's probably doing something pretty important in the rest of my life too. And so I hope the long-term legacy of this is, among other things, to have sparked the future interest and perhaps the future career of many new budding neuroscience philosopher artists out there. That's really beautiful. Yes, because particularly as that came about during COVID and it's ongoing, there's this hunger and there's this wish for connection, particularly during that period of intense COVID. But just because there is all this uncertainty beyond that of not knowing what the future holds. But as you say, you can turn that light inwards and you think about what's wonderful and the all we can experience just reflecting on the wonders of the human brain. That's right. I think there is a need for what you might call a kind of secular spiritualism, a humanist perspective that it doesn't have to be associated with a particular belief system or anything like that. And it's no surprise that you know, locating the dream machine in a deconsecrated church, I think, was really part of that. So you had the architectural surroundings that were redolent, sort of old school religion, yet what was going on was not motivated by any religious perspective whatsoever. It didn't require you to believe in anything in particular, but it nonetheless 
provided that kind of context. It provided that kind of resource for people that they could leave feeling different from how they came in, feeling more connected, mainly with themselves and with others, with the world. Some people described it as a sort of spa for the mind. And I think there's something about it that was distinctive, which was it wasn't cultural content being served to them. Now, here's something to look at or even like a VR environment to, to be amazed by. It returns to what Geisen said about his original dream machine, which is that in the dream machine, everyone's the artist. You create what happens. You don't know that you're doing it, but it's your brain that's doing the business. And I think that's quite powerful as well as a response to what we're constantly bombarded by and what are we going to stream this evening on the telly? There isn't much out there that puts the person at the center creatively of an experience. And I think the dream machine has done that and it's effective. I think it gives people a sense of empowerment as well. Yeah, that's definitely important when we're kind of feeling rudderless is that you don't go looking for the miracle. You are the miracle. We have this great <laughs> creative capacity. As you say, we might not be people of a particular religious faiths, but we live on a planet that's so naturally bountiful and we just have to honor that as well and understand that miracle is actually life on this planet, whatever our tradition is. So as you reflect on education and consciousness, creativity, these things we've been talking about, the future mm -hmm. and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. I don't mm -hmm. know what teachers or life lessons were important to you. What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Hmm. Wow, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a challenging question. I mean, I think, Rather than any particular thing, it's curiosity that is so important to cultivate in education. I remember when I was at school, I was always interested in consciousness and the mind. And I think a lot of people are. And it's one of those things that you talk about as kids. Why am I me and not someone else? And what happens after I die? But the education system it wasn't terrible at all. It was I benefited from it enormously, but it didn't really cultivate curiosity in these kinds of questions. We were educated out of them rather than into them. And funneled into different disciplines and i had this worry that as if i stayed in the academic system that i would end up specializing and specializing you know you choose some exams and then you choose fewer subjects at a level in the uk and then one subject at university and so on so you might end up knowing everything about nothing and it hasn't turned out that way and it doesn't turn out that way and it's been a great surprise a beautiful surprise that actually things broaden and now and i'm i, I realized that I've been particularly fortunate in this, doesn't apply to everybody, that my work involves crossing many different disciplines, ways of working, ways of thinking, so that I'm continually learning. And to your point earlier, it feels creative. I don't know whether it is. <laughs> That's not for me to judge, but it feels that way because of these different combinations that come together. So in terms of education, it's firstly, I do think there really should be some basic training in psychology and cognitive science as standard to learn how our own minds work because if we don't know how our minds work at least a little bit the kinds of biases that we have in terms of making decisions or perceiving things then we're ill-equipped to deal with the society that's trying to manipulate us and a natural world that is changing in ways that are very fast but are still kind of too slow for us to perceive directly so we need to know all that but underneath all that I think it's absolutely key to keep focused on the questions that you're interested in rather than whatever discipline you might think is the thing to go. Keep focused on the questions and the disciplines will mainly look after themselves. And if you keep asking questions and keep being curious, then I think everything else follows. Creativity follows. 
progress follows and hopefully fulfillment follows too and contribution to society as well. Yes, it's so important to know the science and also the philosophical underpinnings of the important questions, the big questions. Well, thank you, Anna Seth, for sharing your curiosity and inviting us to question the nature of consciousness and unconsciousness and perception, creativity, and intelligence. By helping us understand our minds and its limitations, we can lead lives of greater purpose and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well, thank you, Mia, and thank you, Callie. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Callie Cho with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Callie Cho. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.